one of the things I didn't know before becoming a parent is that kids eat, like, all the time. It doesn't matter how often you feed them or when you feed them. They come back asking for more. They want pre-breakfast snack, post-breakfast snack, and second breakfast with its own pre- and post-snack. They want to eat all the time. And if I can steal a line from Jesus, we must become like them if we are to flourish spiritually. And Jesus, of course, says we need to become children in terms of their faith, their childlike belief in him. But I'm referring to children in terms of their hunger for food. I'm trying to say we should hunger for God spiritually. And we should taste and see that he is good and desire more and more of God's presence in our lives as individuals and in our church life together. And that's going to ultimately be the exhortation this morning, is I'm going to exhort you to stay hungry for the things of God. Don't don't settle for less of God than what he's given to you. He's given you all of himself. You must pursue him. You want to become closer to God than ever before. The main idea is this this morning, that God is present with his church. And when he is present, we'll discover that the church is united, the church is hungry, and the church is focused, and the church is filled. With that in mind, we'll pray and get started this morning. Father, thank you that you save people that are greedy, that you save liars and thieves, that you save addicts, that you save the sexually immoral, that you save racists, that you save killers, that you save the unfaithful, that you save drunks, that you save gossips, that you save those who are angry all the time. God, I thank you that you save sinners and that you save sinners like us. That in Christ we are washed, sanctified, and justified by the work of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your great mercy. Help us to taste of that mercy afresh this morning as we open our ears to listen to your words. Speak, Lord, your people hear. This we pray in Christ's name, amen. We are back in the book of Acts this morning, all the way up in chapter 13, and we've summarized the book to this point this way. We said, in Acts, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. 
And when Jesus ascends to the throne in the first chapter, he goes up into heaven, his promise that the Spirit will come down is then fulfilled in chapter 2. And then we see the church beginning to kind of spread out of Jerusalem as persecution begins in chapters 7 and 8-ish. And what we discover as the church goes out is that God is adding to their number. God is bringing people in. And the Word is flourishing The kingdom of God is growing, but it's not growing unencumbered. It's not flourishing without any opposition. What we find time and time again is that people oppose the gospel. Enemies of Christ rise up and try to stop the preaching of Christ, but time After time, after time, we discover in the face of adversity, the word of God prevails. It's one of the major themes of Acts. And we'll see it over and over and over again. We're going to see it in our text today. That in the face of adversity, the word of God prevails. We saw it when we were in chapter 12, the last time we were in Acts. King Herod opposes what's going on. This is Herod, oh man, I'm going to forget which one. There's a different Herod in our text today than the one from chapter 12. He gets Agrippa. Herod Agrippa kills James with the sword, but that doesn't stop the work of God. The servant is killed, but the work of God goes on. Herod imprisons Peter, but God sets Peter free. And at the end of chapter 12, we find that Herod has been killed by God and is being eaten by worms. I'll read that to you. At once, an angel of the Lord struck Herod because he did not give the glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. And notice the contrast, verse 24, but the word of God flourished and multiplied. And that brings us to the beginning of Acts chapter 13. It's where we're at this morning. And we see that indeed the word of God has multiplied. That indeed people from every tongue, tribe, and nation have been brought together here at Antioch. Look with me at verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. This is just a wonderful snapshot of people from different backgrounds and experiences, all worshiping God together in the same church. Notice too, and this is just kind of a side note, that this church has a plurality of leadership. Anytime you see a church in the New Testament, there is a number of different leaders. And Luke's favorite designation is going to be elders. He doesn't use it here. But what's clear is that these men represent the leadership at Antioch. And I think they most likely give us a picture of what the whole congregation looks like. People from different backgrounds and experiences and different cultures. I mean, look at them. Barnabas, we know, was, he was a Cyprian Jewish believer. Simeon was called Niger, and his name means black or dark. Most everybody believes he came from Africa. Lucian came from Cyrene, which is North Africa. Menean was either a foster brother or a relative of Herod Antipas. I knew that would come back. Herod Antipas. So he, he came from great means and wealth. And then, of course, you've got Saul, who was a Jewish believer. This is a cast of characters. 
People that normally wouldn't be together at the same place at the same time. People that normally wouldn't be friends here, brought together in the church at Antioch because of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. This, this little picture of what God intends to do. Right in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10, we read, at the end of time when we are all before the throne of God, there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, to the Lamb. We had kind of a prediction of this early on in Acts in chapter 2. Remember when the Spirit comes down, everybody starts speaking in different languages? And people who are from all different places in Jerusalem are going, hey, that's my language. And we said, this is to reveal to us God's intent that this message, this gospel, this good news, that peace is available with God through faith in Jesus Christ who is crucified for sin and raised for justification. This good news is for everybody. It's not, it's not just for Jews. It's for anyone who will believe. And we see that coming to fruition here in Acts. I think what we, what we learn from this is that Jesus welcomes and loves all kinds of people from all kinds of places. And the application for us is to welcome and love people from all kinds of places. And praise God, one of the compliments I receive most about our little church is how welcoming it is. When people visit, that is almost without fail one of the first things they say to me. Oh, it was so welcoming and warm. We had such a nice experience. We, we felt like it was at home. I'm thankful for that. And I want, I want to encourage you to continue to welcome others. Welcome those that come through our doors and also those you find in the community. Welcome them into your home. Build relationships with people that are different than you. We want to continue to resolve to make no room in our midst for racism or for classism. We want to love people like Jesus does. And certainly that's what's happened in Antioch. We see all of these people from different backgrounds united in Christ. And God is present there. God is present with his church and their unity is evident. This is a church that's united and also hungry. Look with me at verse 2. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after they had fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them off. This is really incredible. This church is united in Christ. They've got the presence of God, but they want more. They're worshiping together. They're fasting. They're praying. They are calling out for God. We want more of you. We need you. As I observed this and thought about this text this week, I went, here they are. You know, they're worshiping. I've done that. I do it weekly. Here they are. They're praying. I do that. I said, well, they're fasting. And at that point, I went, okay, uh, why, why don't I fast? Because right? I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've fasted in my life. 
like food. And so I started thinking, you know, and naturally, being like I am, I try to justify why I haven't done something. And I said, well, we're never commanded in Scripture to fast. You'll look, and you won't find a command, you shall fast. Not going to find it. But what we do see is that fasting, while it isn't commanded, it is commended. We see quite a few examples of people fasting in the early church. And Jesus said that his disciples would fast after he left. And so I had to examine myself, and I went, why? Why have I neglected this particular practice? Not like I'm unaware of it. I think the answer was, is I'm just, I haven't been hungry enough for the Lord. I haven't desired God enough to seek Him in prayer and fasting. At this point, we probably should define what I mean when I say fasting. Uh, fasting is the voluntary denial of normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. It's sacrificing something in order to pursue deeper intimacy with God. And so oftentimes in Scripture, when someone fasts, it's from food. And what they're saying is, God, I need you more than I need food right now. Fasting in Scripture always is is restoring the priority of prayer, restoring the priority of God in the lives of his people. It's pursuing deep, dynamic, intimate relationship with God. Why don't don't I fast? Why don't we fast? I think sometimes we're satisfied with the minimum. Yes, I'm a Christian. I go to church on Sunday. I've, I've got God. I've got his presence. And we're content to stay there and to kind of settle and to not say, God, what I have is wonderful. I want more. I want more of you. Almost, I think of like a um, married couple that's been married for a while that just decides like, you know, we're done with trips together or dating or nights out. We're okay with kind of the status quo. But I think what you find in healthy relationship is couples will continue to go out on dates. You know, they'll take a weekend away together to, to focus on one another, to, to remind each other that, that they are committed to one another and that their relationship is so important. I think this is what fasting does for believers. It, it reminds us of God's priority in our lives. It reminds us of the deep, deep love He has for us and that we have for Him. Don't settle for less than what God has for you. He is a fountain of blessing that never runs out. It never runs dry. You must go and drink of it more deeply. This group is calling out for God. It's for their benefit. There are all kinds of reasons uh, they may be fasting. I'm not sure the text doesn't tell us specifically. But I can think of some practical reasons to do it. And strength in prayer helps us to seek God's guidance, express grief, can express repentance. It's a way we might humble ourselves before the Lord. It expresses worship and dependence upon God. 
Ultimately, it expresses a desire for God. It doesn't have to be, like I said earlier, just from food. You, you can fast from all sorts of things. You know, people that uh, will fast from sleep, and so they'll get up half an hour to an hour earlier than they normally do to meet with the Lord. You know, people that, that fast from their smartphone or social media, may it never be, Lord, right? People that fast from TV or a hobby in order to meet with God. And the goal is to put God back in his proper place. The goal is to have a more vibrant relationship with Jesus. I wonder what you might fast from in 2019. You don't have to fast all the time, but certainly there's a time for it, right? A good application is to resolve, put it on your calendar, maybe once a month. Or maybe just once a year, I don't know. To fast from something and to pursue God. To get on your knees and on your face before the Lord and say, I need you now more than ever. I'm not okay just going about business as usual as if you don't exist. As if I've got this because I don't. I need you. And when you, when you do resolve to to fast and to seek God in this way. Let me tell you, uh, you're going to be derailed. There's going to be temptation to not do it. I mean, just this week, as I was reading this text, I decided, you know, one day, I was like, I'm going to fast through lunch. I'm sitting there, and it's about 1.32 o'clock, and all of a sudden, Chelsea, like, sneaks into my office. All of a sudden, there's a sandwich there. She didn't know I was fasting. And I said, you know what? In service of my wife, I need to love her well by eating this wonderful sandwich that she brought me. And so I did. You know, and the next day I'm sitting in my office and it's about, about noon-ish. And I'm sitting back and I'm like, sandwich coming. Sandwich going to be here soon. And it was like two. I'm like, certainly, sandwich will be here soon. And I was like four or five. And I, well, I guess I just fasted through lunch. Mission accomplished. thought we were setting a good precedent there, but, but no. There will be things that come to throw you off of seeking God in this way immediately the devil will start whispering in your ear, you don't really need to give up food to get more of God. You've got to stay healthy. What's the sense of having food and not eating? You, you can't, can't get off social media. What if you miss something important? You can't turn off your phone. That's how, that's how people call you. And what will they do without you? You, you can't, Give up your hobbies. Now you need to play that round of golf this afternoon. It'll help you feel better physically. You've got to get your exercise right. You know, the messaging will change a little bit, but the gist will be the same. You've got enough of God. You don't need to seek Him through fasting. And when that happens, you need to have the resolve to say to the devil, shut up. I need Jesus. I need God more than I need Facebook. I need God more than I need whatever it is that you're fasting from. I need God. It'll be worth it. So many of us are just so content to, like, yeah, I've got Jesus, and then we, it's almost like we get over him. 
Now, like we're not pursuing Jesus every day. I'm just not sure what we're doing. If we're coming to church and we don't expect to meet God here, to help sow into our relationship with him, if we're not expecting to grow more, I just don't know what we're doing. I don't, I don't want to be a church that's just content to go about business as usual. I want to be a church that is committed to praying and fasting, a church that's committed to crying out to God, a church that's committed to, to knowing God's direction for us. Be a church that's committed to allowing God to make us uncomfortable. Certainly Antioch was. And as they fasted and prayed and called out to God, he made his will for them clear. It's a really wow moment, right? As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Like God speaks to them and says, I'm going to paraphrase here, send your best and your brightest, Paul and Barnabas, to the island of Cyprus as missionaries. Send Paul and Barnabas to tell others about Jesus. This is what God's saying. And I've got to tell you, if I'm in this congregation, I'm a little bit miffed, right? And I'm sitting back and I'm going, are you sure about this, Lord? Because, let's face it, Barnabas, he's the son of encouragement. We love Barnabas. He's actually kind of wealthy. Gives us nice stuff. We don't want to send Barnabas. Let's send like, like Brandon, that guy nobody's ever heard of, right? He's kind of weird. Send him. And Paul, like Paul's the best conversion story ever. Kissing Paul. I guess he's Saul right now, right? Kissing Saul. The best teacher. That's not how God works. He's, he's sending out men who are equipped for this task, who are capable teachers and leaders. This church is sending out their very best as missionaries. They confirm God's call on Barnabas and Saul. After they'd fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. It's underrated the role that the church should play in our decision-making. The church confirms God's call in their lives. It's the church that sends them out. Too often we neglect this excellent resource God has given to us to help us make life's toughest decisions. Paul and Barnabas are confirmed, hands laid on them, and then they are sent off to Crete. And we read, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And they also had John as their assistant. We see immediately what God's agenda for them is and it is to preach. It is to proclaim the word of God. This is the primary task of every Christian and every missionary. If the word of God is not proclaimed, then missionary work has not been done. It is a wonderful thing to go to other countries and dig wells and help feed people and to teach them to farm, but if the word of God is not proclaimed, then you have failed as a missionary. Missionaries preach Christ. Because it's Christ who saves us. 
It's Christ who meets our greatest need. It's Christ who brings us peace with God. The gospel must be proclaimed. That is God's agenda. The mission of the church is to make Jesus Christ known and to know Jesus Christ. Missions exist. The reason we have missionaries, the reason we, we want to bear witness to Christ in our own life is because worship does not. Worship's kind of the goal. Worship of Jesus is the goal, and missions exist because worship doesn't. What I mean by that is there are people in our county and there are people across the globe that do not know and do not worship the one true God who made them. And so the goal is to go and tell them that Jesus has died for sins, that he has defeated death, that he is resurrected, ruling and reigning, and that he is returning, and that they can have peace with God. They can have relationship with this good and mighty king. They can worship him too. This is God's heart, that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation would know him and worship him. This church is focused on God's mission this church is familiar with Jesus' command in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. They're familiar with verse 8 of chapter 1, that kind of mini great commission that Acts is built around. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You can see God's character in Acts as the word goes out and flourishes, as he brings people in to himself. God loves all kinds of people. God is not kind of aloof. God God is not static. He's not disengaged. He's active. He's moving towards people. I love Spurgeon called him the hound of heaven. He's tracking people down drawing them to himself. And he said, church, you're going to be a part of this. You're going to be a part of my mission to seek and save the lost. Jesus is on a seek and save mission and he's invited us to participate in it. This is such an awesome privilege. This is what God is about. It's about telling the world that he's come to save them. God is about this mission. I wonder, are we? Are you? There are, there are people dying having never heard the gospel, headed to a Christless eternity. Are you okay with that? Because God has said we can do something about it. That we can pray, we can give, we can go. There are three ways to respond to the Great Commission. Going, sending slash supporting, or disobeying. Which one, which category are you in? Are you someone that God has called to go? Are you someone that God has called to support and send? Or are you someone who is in disobedience? What about us as a church? Does, do our services 
and our stewardship of our resources, do they convey that we are concerned for the nations, that we are concerned for people to know Jesus? Or do our services and our stewardship of our resources convey that we are concerned with ourselves? When God is present in his church, his church is hungry for him, pursuing him. They start to reflect his heart. They start to be focused on God's mission. Are you? Is there just one person in your life, personally, that you could resolve to pray for each and every day? That you could resolve, God, I want you to save them. And I'm going to beg you for them each and every day. I'm going to share with them. I'm going to look for opportunities to bless them. J.D. Greer, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, calls this someone's one. And he always says, who is your one? That one person that you have resolved, God, I, I want them to come to faith. You need to come up with a one. Pray for somebody. Pick a country. Pray for a particular country. God, help missionaries in, in China, whatever it is. Pray for them. We want to have a heart like God's for the nations. We want to be focused on God's mission. And if God is with us, if we're committed to the things God is committed to, we will be. The church at Antioch was. They send Barnabas and Paul, and then they come to kind of a roadblock to some of that opposition to the gospel in verse 6. When they traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. I'm probably going to call him Serge because I have a hard time with his name for whatever reason. Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And so we get introduced to these two characters on the island. Uh, One is called Bar-Jesus or Elimus, which Luke tells us his name means sorcerer or magician. And he's not your you know, pull a rabbit out of a hat or slide some flowers out of the sleeve kind of a magician. Not like a sleight of hand, but a a black magic occult kind of sorcerer, okay? Probably an astrologer for the proconsul. His other name, Bar-Jesus, actually it just means son of Jesus. Bar is the Aramaic word for son, similar to the Hebrew Ben. Bar, son of, and then Jesus is just a really common name. It was a really common Jewish name. It's not common anymore here. It might be weird for us to name your kid Jesus, but, but then it was super common. It would be like saying, you know, here's Mike the Messiah, right? And so he's, he's a son of Jesus. And he is a false prophet. His goal is to make sure the proconsul doesn't hear and believe. He tries to turn him away from the faith. There's opposition here. 
verse 9. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elimus. Let me back up a second. I got ahead of myself. Just, you know, we'll come back to verse 9 in a second. He's trying to keep the proconsul from hearing the word of God. There are going to be people in your life that will try to keep you from hearing the word of God. We need to consider very carefully who we allow to speak into our lives in a way that matters. There are also going to be things that the devil will use to try to keep you from hearing and obeying the word of God. Like I love the internet as much as the next person. But man, what an arena of distraction. Don't be distracted. Don't let people or things keep you from hearing what God might have to say to you. Now verse 9. But Saul also called Paul, and from this moment forward in Acts, he's going to go by Paul. It's because he's going primarily to Gentiles. Filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elimus and said, You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, and enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You're going to be blind and will not see the sun for some time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell upon Elimus. And he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Whoa. <laughs> Overreaction by Paul? Jeez, calm down, man. Is he out of line here? I don't think so. I think quite plainly we see he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we learn is this. There is a time for hard words. Right? There's a time for gentle words and time for hard words. We need to have both categories both ways of speaking in our tool belt. We need to have the wisdom to know when to employ which and to whom. Wisdom and the filling of the Spirit helps us to discern how we should speak to people. And Paul knows here that he needs to give Elimus hard words. And there's also kinds of fun contrast between Paul and this false prophet. Paul is a true follower of Christ Elimus is a false son of Jesus. Paul is full of the Holy Spirit. Elimus is full of all kinds of deceit. Elimus perverts the ways of the Lord, and Paul makes them clear. Paul says, you will be judged. Notice, this judgment is a mercy. Short-term judgment always is, and I'm going to come back to that in a second. But notice he says, immediately a mist and darkness fell on him, and he went around seeing someone to lead him by hand. That really reminds me of when Paul was struck blind on the road to Damascus, and was in darkness, struck blind, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Notice also Paul says, you will be blind, and you will not see the sun for a time. For a time. I think this indicates that part of this judgment, part of the way that it's merciful, is that it will serve, hopefully, as a stimulus to lead Elimus to Jesus. You with me? I don't know that it did that, that it accomplished that end, 
But at a minimum, this judgment, these words of Paul that come to him, force him to reckon with who Jesus is. He has to, as he is walking around blind for however long it is, he has to consider what he's going to do with Jesus. He has to ask himself, am I going to repent of my sin and trust this Jesus that Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming, or am I going to continue to do me the way I've always done? Am I going to continue to do my own thing? He has to, in this short judgment, come to grips with the reality of God's sovereign control of everything. He has to come to grips with the power of God. He has to come to grips with the reality that God righteously responds to evil and will respond in a way that is much more final. This little, this little judgment, just like most judgments in Scripture, is, is but a faint whisper of the reality of hell and of God's ultimate judgment. And we see time and time again these little kind of mini judgments result in salvation, right? We saw it when we went through the book of Jonah. It takes Jonah going into a storm, getting swallowed by the great fish, going down, down, down to the depths of Sheol. He was on the, the doorstep of darkness' house before he finally called out to God for salvation. Judgment often comes through salvation. <laughs> Wait, got to flip those. Salvation often comes through judgment. And this judgment may have led to his salvation. I don't know, but I know there's mercy in it. Paul speaks this way because eternal things matter. Eternity hangs in the balance. Friends, hell is real. And hell is what you and I deserve. This is, this is what God owes us. This is what he owes you and me, sinners who have rebelled against him and chosen to follow our hearts instead of his voice. It's what he owes us. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ comes and takes what God owes us and gives us what is only owed to him. He earns God's blessing with his sinless and perfect life. And he takes God's curse when he hangs on the tree for you and me. In the nails in his hands and the blood that would be coming from his face as the crown of thorns was pressed down upon him, this, this, this part of the cross is the lightest part of his affliction. The greatest part of his crucifixion is the Father's withdrawal of his presence. Was the relational fracture that happened between him and the Father? Was that silence that he heard in the garden when he said, If there's any other way? The silence he heard when he cried out. This was the greatest part of Christ's suffering. He was separated from God so that we don't have to be. He took the wrath of God so that we don't have to. He, he took hell so we can have heaven. I mean, this is the good news of the gospel, but it only comes on the heels of this very hard truth of God's judgment. 
It's very hard to see the, the glittering, beautiful diamond of Christ crucified for our sins and raised for our justification without the black cloth of sin behind it. Without the reality of God's justice, which demands that sin be paid for. All sin has been or will be paid for. And the question is, who's going to pay? Has Christ paid for your sin? Or are you continuing in rebellion and saying, no, I'll pay for my sin? This is the question that Elimus must reckon with as he walks about in darkness. Will he follow this Jesus? Or will he do his own thing? He had resolved to stand in the way of God's mission. But Paul, as God's instrument, was filled with the Holy Spirit. God would not fail to accomplish his goal. This, this is kind of something sneaky cool in this text. Like This proconsul is kind of a big deal. He'd be like a Roman governor. And Paul and Barnabas, are, they're just a couple of nobodies. Why is he summoning them to himself? Like, how do you think that happened? God. God is preparing him to hear before Paul and Barnabas even show up. God does this. I wonder who he's preparing to hear in your life. Or maybe he's preparing you to hear. Council is ready to hear Elimus stands up in the way of God's purposes and he ends up run over. We read in verse 12. Then when he, that's Serge, saw what happened, the proconsul believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Notice it's not this miracle that brings about his conversion. Miracles don't save anybody. Lots of people saw Jesus resurrected from the dead and didn't believe in him. Miracles are cool, but they're not salvific. What saves is the word of God. What he's astonished at is the teaching of the Lord. Faith comes from hearing. There's the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation. The teaching of the Lord is astonishing. That our God loves people unworthy of love and has made a way for us to have peace with Him even after we've rejected Him over and over and over again. Over and over and over again, we turn our backs on God and over and over and over again, He gives grace upon grace upon grace. He's astonished that, that this Jesus has loved him to the stars. I hope you are too. This is the kind of God that when you see his goodness, when you taste and see that God is good, you can't help but want more. Like a bag of chips, right? You eat one of those things, all of a sudden it's two. And then the whole bag is gone and you're feeling guilty. God's that way. Except where we taste and see that he's good and we want more and more and more and the bag never ends. And there's no guilt at the end of it. He's good. Church, my prayer is that we would embrace God's presence with us. That we would be committed to the things God is committed to. 
that truly, having tasted and seen that he is good, that we would stay hungry for more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us every spiritual blessing in Christ and we come before you boldly asking for more. More of your presence, more of your spirit, more of your direction in our lives as individuals and as a church. We want more. You are the fountain of life. and We want to drink that living water. We want to get drunk on it. God, guide and direct everything we do. Bring us that joy only you can give. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.